Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be looking at Britain's uh, uh, status in the world after 1945 and the the kind of the ideas that uh, the post-war Labour government had about conscription and national service, um, the continuation of wartime service and the uh, sense that um, the British were looking out on a, a, a changing uh, a changing landscape for Britain, a changing international landscape for Britain, and a sense of world disorder. This obviously um, predates the loss of uh, India by two years. And at the end of the Second World War, there is it takes really until late 1946 for the the penny to drop for britain that really um india will not be retained as part of the empire um and the uh the attempt to put on trial members of the indian national army uh, who had fought for subhas chandra bose and fought against the empire and fought on the side of japan during the war 
um, was was uh, such an enormous faux pas by the British. I mean, faux pas doesn't really kind of do it justice. Enormous political blunder by the British that whatever remaining goodwill there was as um, uh, uh, amongst uh, some. Uh, parts of the Indian population uh, quickly evaporated and um, the British realised that there was very little chance of actually assembling a jury that would be remotely likely to convict any members of the INA. Um, the way in which um, the Labour government of 1945 uh, dealt with um, the international picture that that emerged uh, after the war is one of uh, kind of in some ways contradictions some uh, some some ways levels of confusion um labor had been a a part of the the wartime cabinet churchill's wartime cabinet and the 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 labor party was largely signed up to to most of the policy positions of the conservatives uh, a close relationship with america which really, really sort of maintained itself up until the present day um the pursuing of a uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapon it was um ernest bevin um labor's foreign secretary who said you know we need a bomb with the union flag on it um, Labour also believed that big, big defence commitments must be maintained. Perhaps there was no way that a period of national service that lasted as uh, long as six years as um, wartime had demanded. Perhaps there was no way that that was sustainable. But Britain still had, even after the loss of India, still has huge overseas commitments. It has um, commitments that it doesn't fully recognise, appreciate or understand emerging as a result of the, the new dynamics of the Cold War. And it has a, a still a, a belief that the, the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom must be vigorously defended. Uh, a year or two after the end of the Second World War, uh, we're in a still very un uncertain international environment. It's very unlikely that anybody is going to suggest that decommissioning bases on British soil is a good idea. So we're going to look at Richard Vinan's uh, book on national service today. National service conscription in Britain, 1945 to 63. It's very. Uh, it's not simply about um, the politics of conscription. It's really a, a kind of a, a history of Britain as a um, transitioning power. I think is the way to put it. Um, the the narrative of kind of British uh, imperial decline, um, British international decline, um, always needs to have the word relative in there. Britain throughout the second half of the 20th century still remains um, a very significant military power uh, and a significant world economy. It's simply in relative to the United States and catch-up countries like West Germany and Japan in the 1960s and 70s, it experienced relative decline. So, Richard Vinan writes, At the end of the war, there was a period of uncertainty about Britain's future military burdens. A report by the Armistice and Post-War Committee to the War Cabinet 
some matters up in April 1945. Okay, so this is a month before the war had ended. It would clearly have been desirable for the starting point of our examination to have been a comprehensive review of the post-war defence problem of the British Empire, from which could be deduced the size of the forces to be maintained in the United Kingdom both for fulfilment and of its obligations under the world organization uh, by this we we're talking about uh, the united nations and affiliated um, institutions uh, and for essential security tasks in different parts of the world it is clear to us however that no such review is possible at the present time in october 1945 writes richard vinen Ian Jacob, military assistant to the Secretary of the War Cabinet, explained why the government would find it difficult to make an immediate decision about future conscription, but added, new scientific developments, in particular the atomic bomb, have caused a feeling of uncertainty about the shape of our future armed forces. It is evident that for some considerable time, the armed forces to be retained will be such that they can be only support they can only be supported by the continuance of national service on the present basis. The problem will be how to reduce this period spent in the forces by young men called up for something like six years to a reasonable period, say two years. Jacob anticipated three phases, the first lasting 18 months or two years, would bring forces down to a level that could be sustained on a two year, on, by a two-year conscription. Then would come a second period of three to four years, during which the forces would be maintained at the same level to meet occupational duties on a large scale and other abnormal commitments. A third period would begin after about five years when the abnormal commitments have been discharged, but when the atom bomb and other developments may be expected to begin to affect the layoff of our forces. So there was clearly some sense that uh, the the new era of uh, the new atomic age and um, the uh, development of, I suppose, things like jet technology was going to have an effect in reducing the size of conventional forces eventually. Richard Vinan writes, the insert This uncertainty persisted for some time. A Ministry of Defence report in 1946 said that in the unsettled condition of the world, it was not possible to be sure what forces Britain would need, but that it had certain inescapable commitments. I mean, an example of those would be Britain's deployment in Greece to uh, fight the civil war on behalf of the uh, royalists uh, against the communists. Uh, Britain's deployment uh, in Palestine before Britain essentially sort of shirks itself as res of its responsibilities and tries to dump the issue of Palestine on, on the U United Nations. I mean, and uh, Britain's um, obviously large deployment in Germany. These were the provision of garrisons in bases overseas, the pre preservation of law and order in overseas territory, the maintenance of a strategic reserve at home and overseas, the protection of lines of communication, the maintenance of air and coastal defences, the provision of training and administration in the UK for forces throughout the world. The report added that another aim of British policy should be showing the flag. Conscription often fitted into a more general debate about Britain's place in the world that did not necessarily depend on any rational calculation about how it might contribute to military power. The Foreign Office saw willingness to call up young men as a sign of national resolve that would show how Britain had broken with its policy in the 1930s. 
when our failure to maintain compulsory military service after the 1914-18 war gave the impression that the British people had lost the will and the self-discipline to protect themselves and enforce, enforce their voice in world affairs. Now that to me is the interesting bit. Of course we know that Britain had this overlapping series of uh, obligations the you know uh, from the um, aftermath of the war, the occupation of as I said places like like Germany and uh, other parts of Europe um, the occupation of parts of Southeast Asia, the intervention in places like Vietnam um, and the new frontiers of the Cold War that are gradually emerging um, and in addition to that sort of um, the garrisoning of the empire and the uh, policing of kind of gradually um, emerging uh, wars of national liberation there's a heck of a lot there but the British also are haunted by what they see as the mistakes of the interwar period by uh, you know the d- defence cuts of the 1930s during the Great Depression, um, I don't know. I have not seen any evidence that um, Germany particularly was observing British um, uh, troop levels and um, war- naval spending and all that kind of stuff. I mean, no doubt they, you know they have. Um, a vast intelligence operation and no doubt they were how much that shaped Hitler's decision making is questionable I, I, I've never seen any evidence that it particularly did the failure to prevent Japan sweeping through Malaya Singapore and Burma um, is almost exclusively down to um, weakness um, of uh, troop numbers um, uh, out-of-date equipment, um, the the kind of uh, the dregs of British service, really, uh, British colonial service and, and military service, who were um, stationed out in um, uh, Malaya and uh, India and Burma, who um, through through incompetence led to a, a, a an entirely preventable defeat. In, in Southeast Asia, in the in the kind of the crescent of Southeast Asia, uh, occur. These are the sorts of things where, after the war, one might rationally think um, that uh, we, we that Britain advertised and signalled its weakness to the rest of the world. The the extent to which the Japanese genuinely believed in British weakness in Malaya, well, again, it, it is is unclear. Certainly, um, all the evidence points to the fact that uh, General Yamashita um, gambled on uh, the fact that the the British wouldn't be able to defend Malaya. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And in a sort of... um, He had observed Blitzkrieg in France in 1940 as a, a kind of a, a German guest um, and he, he gambled on the possibility that Blitzkrieg um, a rapid offensive to overwhelm the enemy might be possible uh, in, um, the, in, in Malaya and, and he was right so, so the British were, were very much haunted by this and the, the idea that um, Britain must be seen to have a big world presence I mean by the time you get to the mid 1960s um, the likes of Harold Wilson um, continued with this policy and thought that you know Britain should have bases east of Suez and be uh, largely for prestigious reasons. Um, Wilson was um, quite quite the nationalist figure and believed in um, uh, believed in um, kind of nation and empire and monarchy and all that kind of stuff. This sort of idea that various sort of intelligence officers and retired army generals had in the late 1960s that Wilson was some kind of Bolshevik threat is very, very much misguided. Um, But by 1967, when Wilson is forced to devalue the pound in the abject humiliation, the combination of high welfare spending in Britain and also a, uh, a commitment to overseas bases becomes too much for the British economy. The big question was Richard Vinan, which was to some extent masked by talk of policing occupied territories and maintaining prestige, was what power might pose a real threat to British interests after the defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan? The Soviet Union was obviously the most dangerous military antagonist for Britain, but anticipating the particular kind of threat that it would pose and the resources that Britain would have to respond to it was hard, and certainty about the matter haunted British defence policy during the first few years after the Second World War. The result was that after this, uh, uh, the, the result, the result of this was that post-war conscription was built on the shifting sands of changing strategic assumptions. Here we, I mean, this is something I think that afflicts probably most nations. Changing strategic assumptions, or, or strategic assumptions, change all the time because they have to because we're in a changing world and countries perceive changing threats. And the kinds of armies that one has to create are always sort of projections into the future. Right now, in any given country you like, there will be military planners thinking, well, what kind of war will we have to wage in five or ten years' time, potentially? Uh, What kind of um, emergencies will our armed services have to respond to? And it was particularly confusing in 1945 here at this kind of great kind of intersection in in 20th century history uh, and a combination of new technologies um, new conflicts dissolving uh, empires 
or the occupation of defeated nations um, and this new kind of uh, ideological um, uh, feud uh, with the Soviet Union um, meant that there were the the answer was um, to main to maintain conscription um, for fear of uh, being caught out in the way that Britain the British believed they were caught out in 1939. The historian David Edgerton actually really disputes the idea, uh, and it's this, this kind of popular myth that the British have of themselves, that Britain was a poorly equipped, poorly prepared power in uh, 1939. He says far from it, it was a very high technology power uh, with uh, a lot more money than Germany, and um, uh, the the failures really are those are the tactical failures on the battlefield um all the way up to about 1942-1943 when britain kind of at that point really begins to get its act together um so it's important not to go down this route too far of uh, um which is is kind of propagated by churchill churchill who says you know I, I told everybody i warned everybody but no one listened to me and you know well he, churchill is the kind of the writer of the history on this one uh, so you need to take that one with a pinch of salt but it's also populate propagated by kind of popular culture an awful lot um there are, there are innumerable kind of again th- films and plays and tv shows about churchill and the wilderness years and the gathering storm and all this kind of stuff that suggests that britain was completely unprepared and well at the the beaches of dunkirk the german army was quite quite amazed at the equipment that was left behind left behind you know because of um uh, poor military decisions and amazed sort of how well well equipped that the, the the british were and, and and highly envious um anyway the first uncertainty of uncertainty of post-war planning came from the fact that no one knew how soon the soviet union would be in a position to attack the west it had been devastated by the second world war and early british planning was based on the belief that the soviet union was unlikely um um, uh, the war with the Soviet Union was unlikely before 1957. The first long-term aim of post-war conscription was, therefore, to provide a large reserve of trained men of the kind that Britain had so conspicuously lacked at the beginning of the previous two world wars. In the First World War, the British had been able to shelter behind the French army during the two, the, the, the two years that it had taken them to build up a large army of their own. In 1939 and 1940, the policy had failed, and the failure had almost proved disastrous. Now the aim was to lay the basis of a relatively quick mobilisation by requiring all young men to undertake a period of full-time service with the armed forces. They would then spend six years undergoing less intensive training as reservists. This would allow them to be recalled in a time of war. The policy gave little weight to commitments outside Europe and the Middle East. It rested on the assumption that the armed forces would have time to mobilise in the event of war, and on the expectation that they would have years in which to build up reserves. So, um, still an, an element of that kind of uh, 1914, 1939 thinking there, but also uh, a, a series of assumptions based on the idea of Britain almost being some kind of siege nation during the, uh, during the Cold War. Countries that have permanent um, you know permanent uh, national service uh, 
tend to be those who believe that they will be um, under attack from enemies at any given time. Um, I mean, I, I suppose uh, Israel is a classic modern example. Projections that Britain would have time to train and then recall huge numbers of reservists in the event of war came to seem optimistic. This was partly because the Soviet threat suddenly seemed much more imminent. Two events underline this. In March 1948, the Communist Party effect effectively took over Czechoslovakia. In June the same year, the Soviet Union blocked land access to West Berlin, forcing the Western powers to launch an airlift. And of course, the, the, the following year you have uh, the, the detection of the Soviet's first bomb. Um, the, uh, the Cold War also meant that the British kept uh, troops in Austria and Trieste for longer than uh, anticipated, and in 1948 began fighting against the, uh, the communist forces in Malaya. So it's interesting that the British commitments in the Cold War in 1948 shape a, a particularly British worldview. Um, US commitments uh, really begin to shape. America's sense of uh, of what the Cold War world would would look like, um, the the British pull out of Greece in 1947 um, as a result of the, the the Sterling crisis, not being able to uh, afford the commitment there uh, any longer, and Truman said that. And uh, initiating this, the, uh, the 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 sterling crisis by allowing convertibility of the pound, which was a, a condition of the uh, loan that Keynes had arranged in 1945, he said that that was actually one of his biggest mistakes, because the uh, America had precious little interest in becoming involved in Greece or propping up Greece, um, and convincing the American population to become involved in the problems of Greece and also Turkey was very, very difficult. Uh, the Truman Doctrine, his speech on the realities of the Cold War world was in part due to the fact that the British could no longer afford to carry on this role. Other roles, of course, they, they, they did carry on, but Greece was the casualty of, of Britain's declining economic fortunes. And the... Um, the role that uh, Britain retreats from uh, by 1947 has to start to be filled by the USA, which has implications for Britain's world power and has implications for America's world role. But we'll talk about that uh, some more another time. Glad you've uh, tuned in today. Hope you found this useful and interesting. And I'll catch you next time on the Explaining History podcast. Take good care, everybody. Thanks all the much and uh, all the best and thanks very much. Bye-bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 